0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Suite 212, a program which puts the arts in a social, cultural, and political context here on London's Resonance 104.4 FM. Outside, it's basically a beautiful summer's day, but it's February. Uh, I'm Tom Overton, and I'm joined today by the writer and editor Gary Budden. Hello, Gary. Hello. Uh, in 2012, Gary set up the independent publisher Influx Press with Kit Kalis, who was also known for his work on the carpets of Weatherspoon's pubs. Influx have uh, since grown by adding an, uh, another editor, uh, Sanya Semelkula, and the list of books includes Ely Williams's short story collection Atrib, uh a Trib, I suppose, a Trib, yeah. a Trib, um, which won both the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and the Republic of Consciousness Prize in 2018. Gary describes his own writing as landscape punk at the intersections of British subculture, landscape, psychogeography, hidden history, nature, horror, and weird fiction. He was shortlisted for the 2015 Short London Short Story Awards and his story Green Teeth was nominated for a 2017 British Fantasy Award and adapted into a short film by the filmmaker Adam Scoville. His debut collection of short, short stories Hollow Shores was published in 20- October 2017 by another in- innovative independent press the Liverpool-based Dead Ink Books. 2018 was a busy year for him. He was right in residence as part of City of Stories uh, in London. Yeah, London? down in uh, Merton, Merton. depths of South London. De- depths. Uh, uh, and published Judderman, uh a 1970s horror novella under the pseudonym D.A. Northwood uh, with the Eden Book Society. Also in 2018, Gary received a Society of, uh, of Authors grant, uh, featured in Richard Smythe's important essay uh, in New Humanist magazine on the dark side of nature writing. Uh, Introduced there as a a writer, anti-fascist, and astute observer of modern British fascism, Gary was uh, quoted arguing that in the current political climate, stuff that can seem harmless and a bit woolly can end up lending itself to some very dangerous narratives about belonging and national identity, all too relevant in the Brexit era, with the far right on the move again and being taken seriously in a way uh, which would have seemed unthinkable 20 years ago. Hopefully today we'll have time to touch on at least touch on uh, all of those topics. But with that in mind, I want to start by talking about a book that Gary is working on at the moment, called "The White Heron Beneath the Reactor," which is a collaboration with the illustrator Maxim Griffin. And like in some of Influx's projects, it's been crowdfunded through Kickstarter. Gary, how did how did that come about?
0: Um, well, it came about. The idea came about because uh, I'm. Uh, a member of the RSPB, I'm a keen bird watcher and I wanted to go bird watching with my dad, we thought we'd go to Dungeness which is um, if people don't know on the very sort of southern bit of Kent just before it turns into Sussex um, somewhere I was quite familiar with but hadn't been for a long time and we thought we would go bird watching at the RSPB reserve there um, but specifically to see a bird that had just started appearing there which is a bird called the great white egret, if you know what that is it's kind of a big white heron Um, something I'd never seen before it would have been considered uh, you know quite an unusual rarity something for twitchers to go and see maybe only 10 years ago um, it was always common in the continent where things were a bit warmer but all of a sudden uh, they have started appearing at Dungeness as have cattle egrets and then last 15 years uh, uh, little egrets which are like a smaller white bird Mm. and these were things when I was a teenager that were rarities and now they're you can see sort of Populations shifting um, due to uh, changes in climate. Mm. So that was the idea. Um, and I find Dungeness just such a fascinating place because it's classified, or well, some people classify it as England's only desert. It's got a nuclear power station there. It's quite famous in um, film and literature through the work of Derek Jarman. Mm. Um, so it's just all these ideas sort of sloshing around my head about climate change and. Nuclear <laughs> power, and I suppose like the apocalypse, it's quite. Uh, people say it's quite an apocalyptic mm. place, which is yeah. which is what the uh, you know the appeal of the place is. Um, but these were all just notes that I had, and then I was asked by uh, Gemma Seltzer, who works used to work for the Arts Council, now works for Kickstarter. They do a program in January called Make One Hundred, where they ask um, writers, artists, and so on to. Produce a limited edition version of something, like 100 copies only. Mm. Um, and we had to launch it in January. And she said, do you want to do something? And I thought, yes, I do. And I immediately thought, I'd like to do something on this idea. Um, I thought, I don't just want to write a story. and make That doesn't feel enough for a, mm. uh, a limited edi- edition of something. Mm. Um, I immediately thought of Maxim Griffin, who is an artist um, whose work I really, really love. I think he... He's interested in a lot of the same ideas I am about, and our approaches to landscape and uh, and the history in there are very similar. Mm-hmm. He'd done some work for Influx, uh, illustrated a book called Signal Failure we did two years ago. He said yes, and yeah, that was that was where the idea came from.
1: On the the illustration side of things, uh, we'll post some of some of them on the uh, the show's uh, Twitter at Sweet Underscore Two One Two because doesn't work so well on the radio. <laughs> no. <laughs> But um, so, because of the, the the climate change aspect of it is, I mean, it's certainly some one that we're thinking about particularly today because it's mm-hmm. it's very, it's very sunny outside in February. But uh, I think the one of the things that interests me about that idea is um, the, the the fact that the, the the herons, those those egrets, are sort of new arrivals. But it, because of the the patterns of migration mm-hmm. and. Uh, because as they arrive, other birds sort of like basically sort of disappear because of the because of the the changes in temperature and the kind of the different signals that are Absolutely, being sent, yeah. and it becomes a sort of interesting kind of um, the way that that sets against uh, the the movement of of people as well, and the kind mm-hmm. of the background is interesting. But it's
0: that kind of mixture of I suppose for me there was like a kind of a thrill and a bit of a joy to see this bird, which I'd never seen before. I'd always wanted to, um, but then a sort of awareness of what its presence means similar to my feeling today when i look outside i was like it's a gorgeous day i've never been so um afraid of mild weather <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> you can feel the sun on your skin but feel terror rather than <laughs> rather than smiley warmth
0: yeah i mean i mean I, I suppose your body's geared isn't it to react positively to lovely sunshine and yeah and nice <laughs> weather but then your mind's going hang on a minute this isn't Necessarily <laughs> supposed to be happening right now,
1: uh, and the I, I can imagine. I mean, uh, I can imagine the the apocalyptic um, aspect, as you're saying, of the uh, the 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 beach and the sort of the hint of, of the nuclear as well mm-hmm. as a sort of another sort of um, theme in it. That's uh, because who knows? Maybe maybe this part of London will look like Dungeness. You never know. <laughs> you never
0: know. Um, yeah. So it's just I think. Yeah, the themes were very, very clear to me immediately. When I just I was sort of looking at my notes and thinking about what I wanted to do, I was like, "We can use Dungeon and this and this bird as a kind of launching off point into all these issues, and then I can get Maxim to illustrate it nicely."
1: And and Jarman too, I think, has been someone who's been sort of important to you for for a while, and he's um, because there's been sort of a. I mean there should be a, a constant one but a kind of like a, a renewed sort of um interest in jarman recently because i think it's the anniversary of his death is
0: it? yeah i believe this year is the 25th anniversary of his death i know he died in 94 um i don't know when the exact date is um I, i'm actually just reading his uh book which i've got here modern nature which is his uh, sort of diary entries journals for when he was living in prospect cottage which is um his famous now famous cottage in Dungeness which is in sight of the nuclear power station and mm. he famously cultivated uh, this garden there where people said it would be very hard to grow anything because mm. all the plant life gets scoured by the the salt and the mm. quite uh, quite rough weather there because it's very very flat right next to the coast and it's hard to Hard to grow things other than very hardy plants. I think stuff like sea kale and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and now I think people from all all over the world I think go and visit there.
1: Yeah, so become a sort of site of pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Yeah, definitely. Why Why, do, why is he sort of um, Why is he interested in you for so long as a writer? Do you think? Well, as an artist and a filmmaker, <laughs> and all this. that. Answering for you.
0: Do you know? I think what it was first of all because I was always uh, very interested in. Uh, punk rock and those kind of subcultures. I was aware, I became aware that he'd made the film uh, Jubilee, if you know that film, in the 70s, which uh, I personally don't think it's a very good film, but I find it an interesting film, and it features a lot of, uh, I suppose, the sort of punk faces from the day, and that got me aware of Jarman, and then his movies like The Last of England, um, The Garden, which is all filmed at Dungeness, Mm. Just a very interesting way they approached Englishness, the way they approached landscape. Obviously he was a gay man so there was the queer aspect of of what he was doing which was, it's radical now but it was certainly radical in the late 70s and throughout the 80s and I I think I always respond to people who were pushing quite hard in a different direction against Mm. um, mainstream taste. I felt he was very rooted in a kind of British or English culture but you know fighting against it in a really interesting way
1: yeah it's kind of interesting that the the site that he, he's on the shore like that because mm-hmm. he, he's it's england but he's looking you know kind of like he's just geographic geography kind of like forces him he's looking you know elsewhere
0: yeah absolutely i mean you're, you're very close to the continent at that point but yeah he's also someone i i would really associate with london as well yeah. and then he kind of i suppose he retreats there when he when he discovers he's um hiv positive and it's it becomes a place for him to i don't know reflect upon things and Mm. that in itself is a very almost like victorian english idea you retreat Mm. to the coast for its uh, restorative powers of the sea (laughs) air and i never knew if that was a if there was any scientific region reasoning for that but i think i think mentally and emotionally there there definitely is
1: yeah this is like seaside resorts tend Mm -hmm. to be you know to take the waters somewhere
0: absolutely yeah and it's it's quite a, it's quite a pervasive idea and it's something many many people tend to do isn't it? even if they think of going on a day trip usually people especially i think in london and the southeast it's easy to get to the coast and it's, mm. it's still a desirable place it's got that idea of i don't know got a kind of healing property to mm. it and i think i have that feeling myself as somebody who grew up on on the coast uh, by the coast on the Thames Estuary, in Whitstable, um, it's. I never, I never mind going back there. I always mm. enjoy it, and I do find it um, re-energising.
1: Really mm. There's a sort of there's a strange contradiction to it too, because like, because the English, you know, the kind of the. The British Empire, you know, was based on the on the Royal Navy yeah. and all of the sense le- of also as much as and all of the, the rhetoric which is kind of coming back up again around Brexit and sort of Churchill and mm-hmm. like the sea being also a, a barrier and a kind of defence against yeah. I mean there was so much fortification around that part of Kent.
0: Yeah, there's huge amounts. I mean little side anecdote. I was I was just there the last couple of days. Um we were doing Influx Press were doing uh Doing some stuff at the Faversham Literary Festival. So I went down a couple of days beforehand and I wanted to visit somewhere I'd never been before, which is quite near Faversham, which um, is out on the ore marshes. And it's the remains of uh, the gunpowder old gunpowder mills which had been there for, I think, 200, 150 years. Uh, they shut in the 30s and these it was a huge... It looks very beautiful around there. It's very it's very uh, bucolic, it's very English. It's got the old pubs, it's got the lovely marshes and woodlands, but it was quite a site of heavy industry where people mm. made... Uh, gunpowder mm. and they were making it when it's a very high production during the First World War. There's a book by Brian Dillon called oh The Great yeah. Explosion which is about, uh, as you've probably guessed, a, a massive explosion that happened in one of these factories in 1916. It killed mm. like 110 people. Mm. And so again that kind of, yeah, juxtaposition you're sort of very much reminded of the British Empire and, and its violence I think in mm. these lovely settings where people now walk their dogs. yeah, and probably seem a bit quaint now. Yeah. So I'm really interested in that 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 mix. Dungeness is the same it's very beautiful in a way. You've also got a nuclear power station there which obviously has its own connotations to it.
1: Yeah. I feel like a lot of those um those uh juxtapositions and those sort of themes uh, draw on are drawn on in Hollow Shores, mm-hmm. and also the kind of like the the image of the of the the heron or a white egret. Is a heron the same thing as a white egret? It I is a type of heron. I did, yeah. I
0: called it the white heron beneath the reactor just because I think heron sounds better than egret. I don't know
1: yeah.
0: why. <laughs> so it's called a great white egret. I just like I like calling it a white heron. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of my fiction, there are birds in Hollow Shores. Yeah. That I refer to as white herons because Hollow Shores is a kind of fictionalized version. Uh, of that landscape so some of the um, animal species and things like that are not real or they're kind yeah. of versions i've imagined okay. so the white herons and black curlews which are not real species
1: maybe that's a good point to, to move on to ask you to, to read a bit from uh from hollow shores sure. um you're listening to Sweet two on two on resonance 104.4 fm and uh gary budden is about to read you a story from uh hollow shores
0: Uh, Would you like me to introduce it at all? Uh, Yes, please. Okay, so I'm going to read a story called Baleen, or Baleen. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that word. Um, This is a story about a whale. There was all the stuff you'd expect. Heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, etc. Baleen, thick and numerous like bristles on an old paintbrush, but nothing in the gut. Half digested and smelling of pricey French perfume. Empty intestines, they said, unravelled for half a mile, it was running on nothing. No signs of malnutrition or malnourishment, no pox or blemishes, suggesting deficiencies. No barnacles like aggressive teen acne, no scuttling whale lice, pale and piercing. It was as if the model had arrived straight off the factory line without once being used. An idea of a whale. When it happened, I was drinking a lot, watching popular dramas through my digibox, not feeling as bad as I should have done about being laid off the guy who found the whale was one of those motivated joggers in tight lycra running along the shore he liked to get up early he said in the local paper be alone with the herring gulls and the piles of rotting bladderwrack." the crunch of shingle beneath my feet it's so peaceful at dawn now i'd seen the dawn on the coast myself but from the improper perspective coming at it from the wrong direction i'd never gotten up to see the pink glow i'd only ever stayed awake long enough for it to creep up on me and people don't respond to those stories in the same way and I wonder how I'd have been portrayed if I had found the carcass. Leviathan, beached whale, signifier of something I've yet to put my finger on. It's not that beachings are uncommon on this coast. A pod of pilot whales in sympathetic solidarity left themselves up to dry on Dunlin Point. That was in 96. Bottlenose dolphins too, so numerous it hurt to think about it, committed mass suicide in St Michael's Bay, like they all decided it was just too much effort to keep going. That was in 02. And I knew the story from Victorian times about a sperm whale washed ashore near the town six miles down the coast. Opening it up, an intrepid scientist stepped into the thing's heart only to slip and end up drowning in whale blood. Our whale was 90 feet long, a pristine and unblemished sky blue. It was alone. The morning it happened, I noticed commotion outside. More people than usual, kids with sticks they used to prod and poke. The weather was clear but cold heading toward winter. I pulled on my thick green coat, my mud-crusted boots I'd bought on offer from Sports Direct. I made sure my iPhone was charged. It was always worth grabbing a few pics. The coast along the hollow shore, bleak though it is, is always photogenic. So I crossed the road, listening to the cries of the herring gulls up among the chimneys ducked down the little alley that wound past a beached wooden boat and onto the beach. Shingle crunched underfoot. It was nice. The jogger was right. And already a crowd of the townspeople and journalists surrounded the whale. Cameras flashing like a group of tourists at the Louvre. And what a sight. Even as the bird pe- birds pecked at its flesh, it was majestic. It made life in this provincial, salt-smelling town seem all the worst. Here was a reminder of what life could be, how fucking grand the world was capable of being, how i had just been let go from Pfizer's so as they wound up the business and was drinking my way through a dwindling stash of savings, watching HBO dramas. There was a recession on. The council made all the right noises, but nothing happened. The story got into the national papers. A windblown journalist for BBC South East pontificating to camera as a herring tore off a strip of blubber and shot behind him. There was no money, they said. Nothing spare to haul the carcass away. A travesty, shouted the scientists and naturalists. This thing was, after all, an anomaly, but it costs tens of thousands to haul a whale away, even so one so empty and pure. As the days and weeks went by with the stench increasing, a mix between that rotting rack, abattoir, open sewer and fungal infection, i think about its baleen and the strokes of a giant's brush on a canvas as wide as the sky. <clears throat> I wondered where it had come from, and why. I found stories about whales that were the last of their species singing a song that would never find an audience, or reports from men with expensive equipment far out on the open sea about whale song re- recorded, matching no known records. I wondered if our whale was one of a kind, a chance mishap of whale miscegenation doomed to beach on the south coast of England and never be understood. I could sympathise with that. A kind of rogue science set in, looting the booty, and I wasn't above it myself. There was money to be had. I hacked off the flukes that first night. There's no CCTV on the beach, only kids smoking weed around crackling driftwood fires. Listening to the pop of heated pebbles, I sold the flukes to a collector on the dark web. He paid enough money to buy me a few more months. I felt bad, but, like I said, there was a recession on. I took a chunk of flesh for myself while it was still fresh and fried it up in my small kitchen. It was tasty, if chewy. For some reason, I thought it would taste of fish. Each morning, I'd head out and check on our whale's progress. Death has its own energy, a microecology feeding boiling masses of maggots and flies, the gulls, waders, crows and more that fed on the insects, flesh and thick skin. The peregrine I saw take an unwary goal, slithering things and barking foxes at night. The whale got its own Twitter account, fueling a thousand shared photographs of the wonder of decomposition. Some thought it a sign of salvation, others doom and so the whale fed us too, allowing us to project what we wanted onto its degraded form. And one morning the whale now just shreds of flesh hung over a bone frame. I headed to the beach and saw a man who had scolded me for throwing stones at cans the previous summer. He was sitting on a wooden bench, staring out at the carcass and the flat sea behind i don't think he recognized me it's a disgrace i said close so he would hear what's that children have to play around here i said and i carried on towards the whale gulls took flight at my approach the smell of rot everywhere flies were buzzing a dirty encircling halo
1: thanks very much I think that the when we were talking about sort of uh, what to to choose as one to want to read out, that, um, that stood out because it's quite self-contained. Because the the rest of the stories, um, although that also kind of uh, is very much sort of woven into the the pattern of the rest of them, uh, the rest of the stories seem to me to be kind of um, they're almost like a kind of rotating kind of overlapping cast of characters mm-hmm. in a landscape, and the individual stories pick up their different perspectives.
0: Definitely, yeah, and it was it was. Um It was structured like that. So, I mean, I'd been writing short stories for quite a while and some had been published in various places. Uh, And Almost unconsciously, I'd started setting them in some some of the same landscapes and then started to overlap characters. Uh, I don't really know why. I just quite like that approach. Um, One of my favourite writers is the uh, the writer Niall Griffiths. He wrote books like Grits and... um, Kelly and Victor and not not to this level but I always liked that his novels felt that they were set in this sort of shared world there were little overlaps between mm. the characters that you felt like you were kind of rewarded mm. if you were reading re- reading them you'd recognise people and it kind of mm. I don't know for me it adds to the to the power of each one.
1: That's probably a good moment to embarrass you and, and read the uh, <laughs> the jacket quote, which is is indeed from from a, a Niall Griffiths. Uh, it says these short these stories these these words represent an honest scalpel sharp and unafraid dissection of the collective British psyche. Here is a country and a world teetering on the lip of an apocalyptic void, and here are two insanities, desperate longings, great loves and rages and beauties, completely absorbing that must have been that must have been nice yeah well we go. <laughs> You're
0: too kind but yeah i mean you know, when you get that kind of quote from uh someone whose writing was like a direct influence on your own yeah it's a great feeling
1: yeah um something else that i was reminded actually that it was kind of um when i first read it i was i thought it a bit but even more when you when you, when you just read it there i thought about uh Various other kind of literary and kind of filmic and artistic whales, and like I, I started thinking of the the, the whale in in Bellator's Wirkmeister Harmonies, which kind of uh, uh, is sat there in in in, in the town mm. and sort of because uh, I, I think you you also have a kind of like a back. I mean, as the German thing suggests, yeah. you have a kind of background and interest in film and
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was never a filmmaker. I just uh, I, I did study film studies for my masters. I, I worked. Uh, in the in the shop in the BFI for a couple of years mm. when I was much younger, yeah, I've always had uh, an interest in in that. Definitely, um, I've never seen Bellatar, though. I'm aware. Um, I know he's got what's the film? Is it Saturn Tango? It seven hours long? Yeah, was, <laughs> <I> was, <laughs> most the is quite an hour of a well. cow <laughs> running around a field or something. <laughs> <laughs> it is.
1: It yeah. I I I thoroughly recommend the work of yeah. Bellatar. Maybe maybe one day we'll do a show. Uh, Sweet. I think Juliet's I, a fan too.
0: I think I would like it. I was saying this the other day that I quite enjoy. It sounds really odd to say I quite enjoy boring films.
1: <laughs> Durational, isn't it? is <Yeah>. that
0: <laughs> is the word. <laughs> one where you really have to just sort of sink into it and go with it.
1: Um but the another sort of aspect of uh of the book that we, which that sort of um brings up is the the kind of, which is a sort of a broader one which um, we'll discuss in relation to other things is the relationship between fiction and non-fiction mm. because there are um yeah, you know, there's a various sort of fictional whales like I just mentioned. You know, think about Moby Dick and uh, and so on from there. But um, the one of the that the, there was a you know the, a news story of a, a whale washed up on Pegwell Bay mm-hmm. in 2011. And uh, how would you? I mean, because you write uh, as I said at the, begin- at the beginning, you, you write fiction and and creative fiction yep. And I'm really interested in how the the two relate in your work. That's a good question. I mean personally I don't see
0: huge amount of difference between them. Um they're usually going to be about the same kind of topics I'm exploring. Um but Hollow Shores is all, is all fiction. There are you know like like anything obviously taken from things I've seen but often put in very different contexts. Um they might be happening to different uh, different characters or it might be something that you know I've only read about and I want to explore. Uh, The whale thing, yeah, there was um, a, I think it was a sperm whale washed up at Pegwell Bay, which is uh, near Ramsgate in Kent. Um, Another great place that I've written about, not in this book, but um, Mm. more recent story. Uh, But I think at the time it was, I want to say it was in Leicestershire, further up north, and a number of sperm whales Mm. that had got into the North Sea had been washed up and they died very tragically and were decomposing and Mm. I just thought that's interesting isn't it so in terms of what's I don't know what's real um so there's some stories I mentioned in Berlin and like places like Dunlin Point and St Michael's Bay they're not real I made them up Mm. I thought they sounded like (laughs) yeah. <laughs> the kind of places around Dunlins, you know, a kind of wading bird. Uh, but the story about the um, sperm whale washing up in Whitstable in the, uh, the Victorian era and the scientist drowning in its heart yeah. is, as much as I've read, is, is a true story. But that probably sounds like it's more the fabrication. Yeah, that sounds like the one that <laughs> it was made of. Yeah, and no, I find that very interesting, just the little odd quirks of history and the, the strange stories you can find.
1: Yeah. The, I mean, as I said, it's kind of a, a broader, um, a broader theme because the actually, although before we go to that one, just having because uh, I asked you about about film and uh, and that being part of your sort of your background and, and one of the things I was reminded by of, of by that, um, because I think was what is it one of these stories which was made into a film by Adam Scovel?
0: Yes, that? it was. So the film, uh, sorry, the story uh, Green Teeth um which was first published in actually in a almost like a horror, literary horror magazine called Black Static. Um that's a very London set story. It's about um a couple who move onto a canal boat in London mm. because of uh they can't afford to live anywhere else. And it's from the woman's perspective and you never I, I like I like a lot of weird fiction. We can talk about that maybe in a minute. Um but it was me trying to write something in the tradition of people like Robert Aikman but about the housing crisis in London um, it's called Green Teeth because it's uh, this implied in the story I hope it's implied in the story that there's something in the water the the mm. Jenny Greenteeth which is I think actually folklore from Yorkshire I think but there's kind of mm. equivalents of it everywhere but Greenteeth Jenny Green Teeth, sound like it might be a canal boat's name mm. and it's a kind of malevolent water spirit a woman yeah. with like the kind of dank green hair that pulls people pulls people under the water um not the thing on the cover <laughs> that's the uh <laughs> the giant Is but it? it just lent lent itself to the idea of you know there's in, in more slang terms the sense of going under yeah you feel like you're drowning you know when people are suffering from money worries and things like this and then i love london's canals i think they're very evocative places and the film came about just because i know uh, Adam very well. We've done a lot of a uh, number of walks together, and I knew he was a f- filmmaker who first made his name exploring folk horror. Something he's moving away from um, a bit now, and it just came just through chatting. Really, we were like, "Should we do a short film together?" Yeah, and this would probably work.
1: Cool, because there's a parallel there in in. in say like in Berlin and the kind mm. of the stories of whales being washed up or kind of like ending up in sort of like places where you don't normally find them, um, which is also a kind of like, so far as I understand it is a a, a climate change issue. Like they kind of get <laughs> confused by kind of the, the move, the movement of of, uh, of food sources and the water temperatures.
0: Yeah. I think, I, th- I think that's, it was unusual that the ones that had come into the North Sea, um, yeah. they were following food or something like that and they couldn't get out because the North Sea is quite shallow apparently. Yeah.
1: But that's another of the sort of the parallels between, say, that side of um, how animal life is affected, but then saying green teeth, kind of like how the patterns of, pe- of migration of people mm-hmm. the, and kind of like how, and that's one of the ways in which I feel like politics kind of enters into the book because it's about sort of uh, where people uh, are, what pe- what people are forced to by by capitalism, and kind of like where, you know, there's lots of people moving, trying to move out of London and then being forced back in.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's. For people of, especially people of my generation, definitely for younger people, it's almost an inescapable issue. Um, things like, issues like housing and where to live, which I don't feel were quite as issues, as big an issue for my parents' generation as they are for me. And it's, again, I'm not sure how intentional it was. I knew I wanted to write about these landscapes, both London and the kind of, marshy Kent areas um, just because I find them very interesting. And then I suppose the, I don't I don't want to say this is a political book, but I think it's politicized. A lot of the stories are about, yeah, the pressures of late capitalism mm. on individuals mm. in these landscapes. So there are, it, and Green Teeth was probably the exception where I was like, I want, I decided I want to write a housing crisis horror story.
1: Yeah. Excellent.
0: Which did seem to me, for me personally, you know, I I respond to fiction probably more than anything else, and it just seemed the correct way of addressing the issue, yeah, rather than just writing an article about yeah. it.
1: Yeah, you're listening to Sweet Two One Two here on Resonance One Hundred Four Point Four FM. I'm talking to the writer Gary Budden, uh, and that issue, talking about how you might use stories to uh, to address uh, political issues, uh, and also sort of reaching back to something we talked about uh a minute ago about sort of the relationship between fiction and non-fiction and that sort of blurred sort of uh, area um is maybe a moment to to talk uh about um the story mission creep uh which mission drift mission drift sorry um which uh although creep is possibly <laughs> an op- a useful term in that context uh, yeah
0: but they're similar terms aren't they what does mission creep means what I th- uh
1: i think it's, it is the same sort of thing isn't it okay. uh,
0: Mission drift is definitely, if we we can jump into it about when people who are undercover for whatever reason start to forget what their uh, original purpose is yeah. and start to start feeling more and more like they're the uh,
1: assumed identity. Yeah. No, I was just thinking more of the guy's a creep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we should explain what the story is about to to make more sense of that. So uh, as I understand it, like um, uh, mission mission drift is. Um, partly based on the story uh of um p.c mark mark kennedy Mm -hmm. um which maybe you could uh, explain to to yeah this all came
0: out what maybe five years ago on the news so mark kennedy was um an undercover policeman who'd infiltrated uh i think some of the green activist movements i forget which ones exactly there might have been a few um and he he went public with it he broke his cover so all this kind of history of uh the the police's infiltration of various um radical groups uh came out um so you know they would assume an identity to infiltrate these um these groups and a number of them had uh had obviously relationships with women in those um subcultures because that obviously helped your cover but some of them had gone Far enough to father children with these women, and then would just uh, disappear, and that all came spilling out. And I read the book by I think it was two Guardian journalists. That it was just called Undercover. And you know, I suppose I don't know morally or ethically, I find all that quite despicable. Mm. Um, but I found what's interesting to a fiction writer is this sort of double identity that people are are living. Uh, I found reading that book really interesting. The stories of um, I will assume this is true, but I'm not. I'm not 100. But they were talking about undercover policemen who effectively never, never went back. Mm. They assumed this new identity and liked it enough that they, I suppose, essentially became that person. Mm. And that that really, <laughs> yeah, really fascinated me. And a lot of them talked about a kind of guilt they started feeling because they were disrupting people whose what was their aim to, you know, effectively. Stop the worst aspects of uh, climate change or mm. animal cruelty or all these things, and they started finding themselves sympathising to a degree with yeah. the people they were helping uh, to
1: disrupt. Yeah, I, I think you're right that it's it's a really interesting sort of uh, subject for a, a writer of fiction because there's <coughs> there's um, it becomes yeah it kind of refracts back mm. on what you're doing in the story, and it's um, it goes back to some of the, the stuff that uh, you. You, t- you were talking about earlier with sort of um, made-up places, made up, made up sort of places in in the made-up sort of places in the stories, and uh, I thought also earlier on when you were talking about um, folklore, and uh, you, you at one point you quote you quote, uh, you qu- you quote a, a writer called C. L. Nolan uh, saying that folklore is uh, it's quite a nice line: psychic shrapnel embedded in landscape, mm. letting us enter into a living relationship with the past. Um, he does a bit about that.
0: Yeah, uh, so C.L. Nolan is technically not not real. Um, he's uh, kind of a creation of my friend David Southwell, who runs the Hookland Project, which exists mainly on Twitter at the moment. But it's um, I think there's some books coming, and inspired a lot of music and stuff like that. Hookland is a fictional county in England with its own very specific odd uh, folklore and literature and music um it's actually where i got the the term landscape punk from david he started to use it to describe this and seal nolan's a supposed to be a contemporary of the kind of late 19th century early 20th century weird fiction writers mm. people like arthur macken who someone i really find fascinating who was a uh, very much a kind of weird fiction slash horror writer but he was also a journalist and he also wrote uh, a lot of nonfiction that we'd probably call psychogeography now Mm. and he was from Wales but he loved London and was really a Londoner so CL Nolan is I don't know he's just a nice these kind of fictional characters take on a life of their own but you Mm. can use them they're quite malleable yeah and I like the idea of of Hollow Shores and and other people's work kind of existing in a I suppose a shared universe to use the genre term
1: yeah the uh, also kind of expanded universes, expanded universe, a, yeah, yeah, maybe. Um, I'll, the,
0: I'll give another example. Um, uh, a friend of mine, a writer I admire very, very much, a guy called Tim Jarvis, he'd written a, a story that's almost like a cosmic horror story set in Luton, mm. <laughs> <laughs> all centered around a, a fictional poet that he'd named uh, Hecate Shrike. And I thought, this is such a great name. Yeah, so someone I said, I, and I wrote to him, I was like. I would just like to reference that writer in one of my stories. Yeah. And he said yes, and it's just <laughs> not—you know—it's not a key part of the story. I just wanted that sort of extra yeah. detail in there.
1: Um, well, I shouldn't let um, what you just said go without um, asking, because right at the top of the show, I uh, use your, uh, the term that you use, landscape punk, mm. and you just sort of mentioned where where you sort of initially got got the idea from, or mm-hmm. at least some of the one of the people you're in dialogue with about it could you say a bit more about what you what you mean when you say landscape punk
0: yeah i mean i think it was a slightly tongue-in-cheek term but i found it increasingly useful to explain or to give a name to the kind of work i was doing and i see other people doing like david like um maxim i think would be another one and it's just and i think you're seeing it more and more people who have a you know great interest in in landscape, in in nature, in nature writing. Um, But, I don't know, the approach feels like slightly different. Um, I think there's a much greater awareness of younger writers in the climate change issue. Mm. I think we're very aware of what is happening there because you can can see, you increasingly feel like you can see what's happening more and more. And I, I do feel some more traditional nature writing be quite comforting. Mm. And I would I would hope that landscape punk is not comforting, it's more mm. questioning. I don't think it's it's a negative thing. Uh, and for me it's having this awareness of uh I suppose different modes of writing, especially like kind of some genre fiction, especially for me, weird fiction and I don't know, like some of the Horror stuff from the seventies by like James Herbert and mm. Ramsey Campbell, which I'm a big fan of. It's and it's got the subcultural element I mm. mentioned, Jarman earlier, and um, and punk and all those kind of things. And I think for me, it's it's sticking all of that in there, and it is a little bit politicised, mm. but not politi- For me, not political. Yeah, I'm not really interested in writing diatribes. Yeah. Um, does that explain it?
1: Yeah, <laughs> 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 it kind of just as you're explaining it, it made me. <laughs> It made me wonder if other sorts of uh, perhaps more kind of florid landscape writing to be described as landscape prog. <laughs> maybe, <laughs>
0: yeah. Something <laughs> as I done, got older, I don't mind some prog now. <laughs> I, I end up uh, liking a bit of Hawkwind and stuff like that. But, yeah, I, 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 that's quite a nice way of describing it, yeah.
1: <laughs> because I suppose is the... I mean, I, I suppose it maybe it, it doesn't make sense to push it too much. As you, as you said, it's a sort of... It's a kind of it's a useful term, but um, there's an element of tongue in cheek about it. But do you think is there a kind of aesthetic element to it as well? Because like you know, if you think about mm. those sort of two things in binary and kind of like prog versus punk, there's you know, the, there's an aesthetic thing in that you know, punk tends yeah. to be more stripped down and it, it's more about. Do you feel uh, does that that quality comes into the writing? I, th-
0: I think so a little bit, and I'd, not just the punk stuff. I'd, I'd say like rave culture for me figured a lot in it in not not that i was ever a raver but i was interested where these things happened the spaces mm. they happened in so um in an urban context a lot of these things would happen in um they'd, they'd be in probably temporary spaces or or squats so i've been to many events that are in buildings that either got demolished soon afterwards or you know they got people got evicted and the places got turned into into flats or or whatever and, and that was really interesting to me because it felt like having access to a, a, just a different perspective on mm. on the city and that literally seeing these spaces and then not seeing these spaces mm. i was always interested in uh raves and the kind of free festival scene mm. um in the 80s and the 90s and how that was often centered around almost like national trusty play. Obviously, mm. the big one was Stonehenge, which got yeah. shut down in the uh, in the 80s at the Battle of the Beanford And I just found that really interesting, this sort of how the, the subcultural movement seemed to be attracted to <laughs> often almost like hippie-ish sort of sort of mystical sites, but often very, very beautiful sites as well. I think yeah. there just was a kind of connection there.
1: It's an interesting because I suppose um, punk tended to, tends to be about kind of Venues and sort of like uh, subcultures which are kind of pushed to kind of marginal spaces Absolutely, in, in yeah. cities. Uh, and I suppose, like, with with like the history of rave, a lot of this, although it happened in the same places, like, you know, there is a sort of like a history of rave sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, pushed out to the countryside yeah. and before the criminal justice act. And
0: so, I'll give you an example. I mentioned Niall Griffiths earlier. It was his second novel, which is called uh, probably is quite a political novel. It's called, he, he's, um, lives in wales the book's called Sheepshagger, and it is a lot about english gentrification of mm. beautiful spaces but there's a very long long passage set in a rave in the mountains and it mm. was just i don't know for me that was something that really clicked into place for me it's beautifully written very very high energy you know it's got the it's got the feeling of that but it's also surrounded by uh the mountains near mm. aberystwyth and it had this i don't know just the strong sense of the landscape and this kind of I suppose slightly messy (laughs) (laughs) subcultural stuff going on within it and that was was a very forceful feeling for me and I was like there's there's something in that and I don't see that a lot in certain kinds of nature writing probably because not everyone has that kind of background Mm. some people are not interested in that stuff or never experienced it and therefore probably don't talk about it Mm. they might not be aware of it so it's not a criticism per se but I wanted to bring all that stuff into my own writing
1: well it it is sort of it's an interesting conjunction i think probably because at least until you start thinking about it most people would would think of punk as being a specifically urban thing Mm -hmm. and then so it like bringing into contact with landscapes really really interesting um the talking about like subcultures and i suppose the sort of cultural texture of uh of certain periods and sort of trying to link back to what we were saying earlier on about um, about fiction really Mm. Uh, another one of your projects which I I mentioned at the top of the show was it was Judderman uh, which you wrote under the the pseudonym uh, DA Northwoods can you talk a bit about what that is and how it came about
0: yeah so this came out last year Um, the Eden Book Society is kind of an offshoot from dead ink who um, published Hollow Shores and the idea was they wanted a series of, a set of effectively lost lost quote unquote horror novellas that they had somehow acquired mm. um, a, a, like a private press for members only and uh, the idea was that famous writers of the time had uh, contributed under a pseudonym and there were uh, this this series, the Eden Book Society had run for about a hundred years mm. they wanted to start with doing six novellas um from the 1970s. And they asked me and uh, five other writers whose names I won't give away, although it is very much an open secret. <laughs> <laughs> it was even there on the crowdfunding page, but nobody read to the bottom of the page. <laughs> uh, and I liked the idea, really, and uh, just had to come up with a uh, a pseudonym. I came up with DA Northwood, and I liked the idea of setting something in the 1970s. Um, and I just thought immediately I'd like to some- write something that's in a way, moving away a little bit from some of the ideas of hollow shores and writing something that's almost claustrophobically enclosed in London at mm. the time, and I felt if you look at you know the political situation, social situation in London in the early mid 70s, there's a lot of problems there, mm. and it was just it was a good way of talking about those things, but also with the added, I suppose, fun and challenge of trying to set it in a time period that I, you know, I'd never experienced at all. Mm.
1: So you have to kind of immerse yourself in the in the seventies a bit,
0: a little bit. I mean, I think I knew enough of like London history to get that stuff right. In terms of the tone, I knew I wanted to. Um, like I mentioned, Ramsey Campbell's name earlier. I'm a big fan of his uh, short fiction from the seventies, and he was writing. He's from uh, Liverpool, and he was writing very much about like the sort of urban decay of Liverpool in the seventies, mm. but through a you know, using supernatural horror, it which worked very, very well, and I thought I'd like to do that, but put my own ideas into it, have a bit of that grimy feel of a bit like the rats or something, but yeah. um maybe a bit less trashy
1: yeah <laughs> we've probably actually we've probably actually got time if one comes to mind to kind of to read a little bit from it if you if there's a particular passage which
0: yeah, if we have time, that would be great um I know what I can do, so the novella is. It's kind of built out of um, different fragments. So there's the narrative of um, a character who happens to be called Gary, who's trying to find his brother, who's called Daniel, Danny. Uh, So it's built around his narrative and then extracts from his brother's journal, um, some extracts from novels that don't exist and so on. So maybe I can read a little bit of this. So this section is from Daniel Iders, that's his full name, his journal. Uh, the Judderman is a myth. A myth of a city that invents its inhabitants, a city whose inhabitants dream their environment into being on a daily basis. We made it and it makes us. The Judderman is a thing born from brick and fright. The Judderman is the hate that bubbles up between the cracks and the tarmac and spills over into riot and spilled blood. He's the spent fluid dripping down walls after desperate back alley passions. He is the dereliction and the decay of London. Observe the shadows cast by the city's crippled buildings, designed sober and built drunk, and you'll find him crouching in twitching anticipation with the rats and needles, the abstract patterns of broken glass that one day I will decipher. The architecture of brick and stone rots in a metropolitan hangover, and the Judderman is your stale beer breath the morning after the night before, blood flowing from your gums as you scrub hard to wash all the poison away. The overflowing ashtray, unemptied and stained with thick black residue. He's the rattle in your chest, the damp in your bones. He's that little old lady. You think you knew her somehow in childhood. Was she a friend of your granny's? Who was found keeled over and her head cracked open like an overboiled chicken egg. She slipped an ice in that bad winter a few years back. You remember the one. It was as cold then as it is hot now. You think you can decode messages in the gum that sticks to the pavement. Spongy braille for you to read with dead eyes down on your knees and palms stretched lovingly over the pavement you can see pyramids and temples and ziggurats form in the piles of crushed cigarette butts in the smoke-stained pubs the dark stains left by spilled beer on threadbare carpets assume the aspects of faces and it is there you see the judder man also he is a rotten wooden windowsill that disintegrates into dust and flakes when you grasp it he is the holes and tunnels dug by masonry bees that undermine our riddle and riddle our homes He is the abandoned tube stations and their their pale-skinned inhabitants who worship the old gods of London. He's that junkie girl you saw sprawled on a mattress that crawled with lice. The sores around her mouth dried vomit beside her cooling body. He's the lad you went to school with, found with his neck broken in Tottenham Police Station. He's the pile of children's clothing and burnt bone found in the bracken and nettle of Victoria Park by the Regent's Canal. He's the story of how those remains came to be. What the underground mutters to itself, and that others treat as salacious rumour, it's true, it's all true. Those people, the ones in power, the ones who live on the tops of the hills of London, who sit in the seats of government, who run our police force, they're feeding on the forgotten and the unwanted. Worse, on the children of the forgotten. They They know who people care about and who they treat as something unworthy of seeing. They're feasting on the unseen. Is this what the Judderman man is? Does he do their work for them? These men and women in suits and sly smiles. I see. I think I see him now, lurking in crowds on kids' TV shows. The Judderman man is the pigeon with rotten stumps for legs, hopping around in decreasing spirals for the amusement of stupid tourists in Trafalgar Square. He is in the glass fragments of a pint glass pulled from a man's face in A&E on a Saturday night. He is the boot boy's steel cap boot as it connects with bone. He's the policeman's baton and grey-brown dust encrusted on a black mariah with clean me thumbed in the dirt. Once you know about the judder man, you see him everywhere, and I see him everywhere. I do not know how to tell the people the things I know other than perhaps through these words I write. I have seen too much, and no one will believe me, not even my brother. How can I explain what lives in the shadows? So I'll say it again. The man is a London thing, a myth of my city, born from grim necessity. I did not yet know its motivation or its reason for taking an interest in me. This trauma that we live through needs a form for us to understand. It needs a face, it needs grasping arms and pointed fingers and sharp teeth. It needs a voice like ink and velvet, and now the city has what it needs. Perhaps I am perverse in my thinking. But I dra- daydream of how in some obscure way the Judderman could be the city's saviour, how I will find myself again if I can find and prove the existence of the Judderman. Thanks very much. Does that give a good flavor?
1: It, it does. <laughs> 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 a sort of, yeah, a certain, very a very certain flavour. Yeah. A kind of uh very seventies and very sort of. Yeah. Um the uh, the, the another sort of aspect of that which has been a sort of something that's fed through all of the stuff that we talked about is the and maybe I think connects to the, the punk thing we talked about punk aesthetics maybe also there's a kind of punk ethic to it too the The fact that all the books we've been talking about have been published by independent publishers mm-hmm. and uh, often through kind of Kickstarter type projects yep. uh, and there's a sort of you know, DIY sort of aspect to it which is um, to, to Kickstarter I suppose which is like a um, maybe a punk thing is that is there I there a?
0: Well, I don't imagine I'm not sure I'd call Kickstarter. Um, well, I mean, <laughs> Kickstarter yeah, probably not Kickstarter. But, uh, you know, they still they're a business that profits a lot off of all these things. Um, I think it is very it's helpful. There's been a kind a, a bit of a democratization of what of things you can get moving, and I think mm. that's that's really a very positive thing. Um, it, it takes away some. If you're running a small press or you you, you don't have a lot to start with to get things moving it kind of takes that risk away and you can sort of gauge if people are actually interested in what you're doing and Mm. and that's a really that's been very very helpful for us yeah like two two years ago influx press we did a kickstarter funder essentially to help fund the next four books we were doing and help us move up to the next level and we raised fifteen thousand pounds there and that was Quite mm. a lot of work doing it because yeah. you have to make a video and you've got to be very active on social media pushing it. But it did work, and that was massively helpful for us. So, and little things like this, the the White Heron project that Gemma approached me about, that funded in a day, and it wasn't huge amounts we were asking for, but it, it's nice because you think, oh, I can, I can do these kind of interesting projects, yeah, and I already know that there's an audience for it,
1: yeah. Because I suppose that's, um I mean, there were kind of two questions really there. That one one is about like how the the people you've um like say dead ink and the people the, the mm. ways that you published your own work um but also where the kind of like the energy and the idea sort of came for uh, for for influx mm. initially kind of like how that all all got started
0: <laughs> um i mean we i don't think we had a a plan at the beginning we knew we wanted to do a book we knew we wanted to do an anthology uh, the anthology was called uh, acquired for development by a hackney anthology um, when i was still living in hackney where kit still lives and the area was undergoing a lot of change in sort of 2010 2011 with the uh, build up to the olympics and we wanted to do an anthology um collection of kind of creative non-fiction poetry and fiction with that kind of very clear um geographical boundary to explore those those issues mm. And that book did well enough that we decided to carry on. Mm. Uh, there wasn't really a a grand plan at that point. Mm. I think we just liked the experience enough that we wanted to keep going. Yeah, it but it's
1: kind of developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think there was a more like there was initially at least like a kind of like a quite place. Yeah, I mean
0: I think at first we said site specific writing. Yeah. Which I still like as a term and um which is actually kind of an idea I'd got from uh theater. I remember the term site-specific theater where, mm. you know, the place was how they would partly would design the show and they do them in old buildings or whatever. And I thought that was good. Uh, as we've gone on, I think that's expanded out a bit just because we're doing more books and would like mm. to publish just the kind of writing we, we enjoy reading mm. more and more. I think a lot of them still have a, a place focus just because from my editorial perspective, that's... Part, that's something I always enjoy reading. Yeah, but I wouldn't say it's like the guiding force behind it now. But I think to some extent we're always going to be <laughs> known for doing that kind of work. Yeah,
1: but you, but I mean you've kind of uh, you know, thinking of some of the things you've done recently. It's kind of like Ellie Williams's mm-hmm. thing, and kind of like a it's really you know it's taken on its own own kind of life and sort of expanded. Yeah, which is it's
0: very exciting. And we're at a, a really interesting, exciting point at the moment where things are definitely definitely ramping up. We're going to be. Bringing out a lot more titles, all unannounced at the moment, now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you, you don't want to announce them there. <laughs> I can't announce them yet, unfortunately.
0: But we just uh, we were open for submissions throughout uh, all of January. and received a lot, a lot, but also a lot of very, very good submissions, which is yeah. really encouraging.
1: Okay, well, t- t- if you can't tell us about what's coming in the future, tell tell us about uh, what's what you've got out of the, at the moment, which uh, you've been working on recently.
0: Um, so our most recent novel just came out three weeks ago which is, uh, we mentioned Adam Scoville, the filmmaker earlier, He's also a novelist. We've published his debut novel, uh, Mothlight, which I'd only describe as if W.G. Zabold wrote a ghost story about a lepidopterist. <laughs> <laughs> and that has been an awful lot of fun. It's really quite an unusual book, really interesting to work on. It's, um, And we're going to be publishing Adam's next novel, which is called how pale the winter has made us next year
1: and hopefully be working with him yeah for a while to come i hope and because there's other i mean one of the the uh the other sort of like big books um uh that you've done is is Darren anderson's mm-hmm. imaginary cities and that's got a kind of its own it's bit <laughs> it both has its own place specificity and because of the imagined aspect of it none at all <laughs>
0: <laughs> well yeah i mean its specificity is is the city but like by which he means real cities cities that no longer exist cities in fiction fi- cities that exist only in our minds in mm. songs so it's just that book was that came out 2015 but i mean kind of a mad book to do really it's about 500 pages long um just looking at what
1: cities mean in the human imagination mm. wonderful book i obviously i would say that but <laughs> we, we can uh we can we can link to it um in all of the uh the stuff that uh, Juliet will assemble and mm-hmm. post after this. kind I think she's probably already assembled it as we speak on the the sweet underscore two one two uh uh Twitter account. Oh, great. Uh I'm trying to think if there's anything we haven't covered. I suppose I mean one of the uh very briefly the the thing that I alluded to right at the beginning was um the <laughs> the shout out you got in that um that Richard Smythe essay about about, yep. about um in new humanists um h- how did that come about how did that come about
0: uh richard who i've never met in person but we were always friend friendly through through the influx stuff and online and he contacted me just saying he'd like to ask me a few questions for this mm. um for this essay because i had would you uh, should we specify what the article was yeah, about it, yeah yeah okay, well. go <laughs> on um he, he wrote an article for Explaining um, nature, some of nature writings uh, links with as he would see it uh, with far-right ideology Um Starting off with the, the the man who wrote Tarka the Otter whose name is now eluding me He was an actual supporter of um, like the UF <laughs> mostly sort of British fascism um, and That's you know widely regarded as one of the kind of high points the most popular uh english landscape focused
1: and not <laughs> i've dropped this on on you right at the last minute so it's are gonna be quite quick um but yeah um we'll, we'll link to it again we talked about it with mm-hmm. um with uh jessica lee as well uh and about sort of yeah. uh which was um i suppose actually that's we'll, po- we'll post a link to that uh that story that um sh- episode as well because that's a nice kind of uh partner to yeah. this this show uh and the yeah. Sorry, sorry. I thought we could talk about that briefly, but it's, it's actually way too much to go into. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, thanks so much for, for, for joining us, Gary. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Uh, we'll, all of those um, things we'll, we'll link to. You. And uh, next week, Juliet is uh, joined by Daniela Cascella to talk about um, the filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini. Um, it should be a good show. Um, yeah. Um, Sweet212 at, and sweet and, at Twitter. Uh, Gary button thank you very much. Thank you.
0: <laughs> this program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.